0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today we'll be talking to Frank Close about the new book, Elusive, How Peter Higgs Solved the Mystery of Mass. The first major biography of Peter Higgs, revealing how a short burst of work changed modern physics. A revelatory study of both a scientist and his era, elusive, will remake our understanding of modern physics. Well, Frank, welcome to the show. Hi. So, how are you? How is your week going?
0: Well, uh, good news and bad news. I mean, I had COVID about five weeks ago, and I'm still trying to get rid of the coughing. So, I hope it doesn't start in the middle of our chat.
1: <laughs> oh boy! I hope you feel better.
0: yeah oh no I feel fine otherwise it's just uh, something that happens at random
1: oh all right so can you tell us what you do
0: well uh, I'm a theoretical physicist a particle physicist um, but I spend a lot of my time writing
1: and how did you get interested in uh, physics
0: well as a child uh, I was very interested in science I didn't like chemistry because I could never remember it seems to be a lot of facts whereas physics was more a question of why do things happen the way they do and I always wanted to know why what are the explanations so I suppose that's how I got into physics um, but it's the fact that I'm a physicist that uh, I've been writing books around physics for for a long time for the general public primarily I've got very much interested in the history of uh, physics and science, the latter half of the 20th century, having lived through quite a bit of it myself, I suppose. Um, But this latest book, Elusive, is about uh, Peter Higgs, the creator of the Higgs boson particle that was discovered uh, 10 years ago in 2012. And the fact that this is what I was writing uh, links to who I am in that uh, I've been a physicist in the same field as Higgs for the whole of my career. I've known him uh, as a colleague and uh, as a friend for maybe 20 or 30 years, I should think now. And uh, the fact that when the Large Hadron Collider at CERN was being planned 30-odd years ago, time flies, with its goal, at least in the public's mind, to create the conditions that could produce this predicted particle that was so key to modern theory Um, the idea of having Peter Higgs popularize this was mooted but Peter is a great scholar but not the sort of person who easily goes onto the stage and speaks to people and so what happened was that uh, I would go on stage and interview him so that he would sort of develop the story uh, with me as an interlocutor. And uh, this is the first time I'd done that. We, our first uh, chat together was before the boson was discovered. Um, I happened by chance to be at a summer school with him immediately before the boson's discovery was announced. Um, And we can talk about how he got called away from Sicily where we were to go to the meeting in Geneva where the announcement was made. Then I interviewed him again afterwards. Another period about three or four years, we had several conversations like that. And I began to realize that I was living through history here and talking to this man who he's he's very quiet, uh, very modest. And I thought, well, I can tell his story because this is the thing that I have been working with alongside him and so the idea perhaps developed uh, around then it really matured about three years ago just before the the pandemic hit and uh, that is how the book began I called it elusive for two reasons one it took 48 years after his first prediction that this particle should exist before it was possible to produce the technology that confirmed it, so the particle, the Higgs boson, has certainly been very elusive. And he himself is a person who is very elusive that the day that the Nobel Prize was announced uh, in 2013, uh, he disappeared. Nobody knew where he was. The Swedish Academy couldn't find him. And uh, they delayed the announcement for half an hour until eventually they went ahead anyway. So Peter Higgs also is elusive, so doubly elusive.
1: Oh boy, difficult to catch. (laughs)
0: Yes, it's not easy. The fact that uh, uh, he, he doesn't use the internet at all, he doesn't use a mobile phone, um, the only way to interact with him, other than visiting him, which of course during the pandemic was not possible, he lives in Edinburgh, I live down in Oxford, which is about uh, 400 kilometres away, um, was by either writing a letter, but even the the mail wasn't being delivered during the pandemic. So I would telephone his uh, landline. Uh, He doesn't answer, he doesn't like, he worries about the media following him and so forth. So he would then pick up the message on the landline. We would agree a time for him to call back and then we would chat for a couple of hours. And through the 12 weeks of the lockdown in Britain, we chatted for about 25 hours in total, two hours a week. Um, So I would have these long chats with him. I would be transcribing them and developing ideas. Uh, And so quite a bit of the structure of Elusive emerged during the lockdown. I think those weekly chats helped keep us sane. I mean, in in Peter's case, he is now 93 years old, uh, lives on his own in the third floor apartment uh, in the old town in Edinburgh. Because this is a a classical old building, it is not allowed to have an elevator installed in there. So he has to climb up 84 steps, which I noticed was one for every year of his life at the time when he won the Nobel Prize, um, which he still managed to do. So I think uh, probably we helped keep each other sane during that rather strange period. So the whole putting the book together turned out to be elusive. I hadn't anticipated how apt the title has been.
1: So before we get into nitty gritty of the book, you're in a very unique position to tell this history really. Um, And I was wondering how easy or difficult is it for you to reconcile your scientific career with writing? What would you say to our student listeners that might be interested in, you know, writing about the history of science, for example, of their fields?
0: Well, the first question is uh, to be quite clear, why you want to do it. Uh, quite a few people you know, come to me and they say, well, they, they, they want to write a popular book about physics or whatever. And because they've heard that uh, somebody has written a book and it's been a bestseller, they've seen Steven Weinberg's first three minutes, this, that, and the other. And they think that uh, they want to write a book and sell you know, a million copies or so forth. So what I say is, look, go into the local bookstore and look at the shelves there, and you'll find many books on our field or on other areas of science by people you've never heard of, book titles that you've never heard of. So first question, why is your book going to stand out on those shelves? On the other hand, you might discover, while looking at all of those book titles, that there is something missing. So if you found a sort of niche to be filled then maybe there's something to go ahead and write if that's the reason you want to do it. If you want to do it to make money, you've got to be expected not to. Really, you've got to want to do it because you want to do it. Um, Now, in my case, I have been writing uh, popular descriptions of science now for many years. And I find often that, uh, for example, this area where Peter Higgs is working Um, the area of particle physics that I specialized in dealt with the the nature of the atomic nucleus and what's called the strong force that is not the same area that Peter Higgs worked in so in part when I'm writing a book like this it is my opportunity for the first time to really learn and get into what it's all about and so it perhaps ends up that I write a a travelogue in a way, my, my, my particular journey into trying to understand something. And hopefully the reader then joins me in that journey uh, so that the reader also uh, picks up something about the science. That's when I'm writing a book where I'm trying to bring the concepts of science across the reader. This book was rather different um, because I had known Higgs and realised that this was a very singular story in the history of science um and that i was in this unique position i initially thought that i would write higgs's biography um and that was three years ago what i thought i was going to do but all all projects develop as you get into them and it quickly became clear that a biography of the higgs boson was actually the real story um The background to Peter Higgs himself is also there, and it's very important to understanding the nature of the man and how he's reacted uh, to the the media that have hounded him in his perception. Uh, He doesn't like being thrust into the limelight. I'm sure as uh, we discuss his early life, we will see uh, the...
1: All right, so let's dive into the book, and then can we start with the very basics, then? Could you... Kind of give us an overview. Who is Peter Higgs?
0: ...year-old Nobel laureate, uh, famed for being the uh, man behind the idea of what we call the Higgs boson, and why that is so important we can discuss later, but that's, that's who he is. Um, but he was born in 1929 in Newcastle in the north of England. Uh, his uh, father was uh, an engineer for the BBC. The BBC is a hundred years old this year and his father was an electrical engineer with them. The background though, when one is trying to understand, I think the person, uh, it, it became clear to me, I thought, well, what the public want to know is what is it that Peter Higgs did? That's one side of the story. But why is it that it was he that did it and not somebody else? Um, so I really wanted to understand quite what his family background was and, and where he came from. So, for example, his father um, had been in the First World War and had been absolutely appalled by seeing the uh, the padres, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the supposedly men of God urging troops over the top uh, to go and kill Germans and so forth. And he felt that this made the Ten Commandments negotiable. And the result of this was that his father uh, became totally and utterly disillusioned, um, not just with religion, but with life in general. Um, And after the war, he married the sister of one of his uh, friends from the trenches. Um, And he And the father was so uh, disillusioned, he didn't want to have any children at all. But as Peter Higgs told me, uh, his mother said to him that she had managed to uh, interfere with the traditional method of contraception, as a result of which Peter... Uh, was conceived and born, their only child, which uh, was fortunate for him, obviously, (laughs) and for us. So that was the sort of background. Peter, as a child, um, was quite sickly. He had very bad eczema, uh, so much so that uh, when he was put into bed at night, his arms were encased in cardboard tubes, so he didn't sort of scratch himself. Um, He had asthma. He had double pneumonia. We're talking you know, 1930-ish here, a long time before penicillin. Um, and so he didn't start school uh, at the age of five. Um, he was home taught for a year. Um, and uh, he was not allowed to play with the other children because his parents had the impression that exercise brought on the asthma attacks. So he had a very isolated childhood. Now... He was taught numbers and reading, and I suppose that loneliness in its way uh, both led to a love of scholarship because that is clearly what he is as an intellectual, a person who loves to read and dig and get deeper into things so he can completely and truly understand the nature of them so that was uh, one side of his character the other one is i think that being an isolated child and as well as being an only child led to him being the person he became as a man which is uh, shy withdrawn he is at ease in the company of people that he knows but he doesn't like being in crowds or large groups. Uh, He likes just to be left to his own devices to get on with things. And as you can imagine, uh, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later, when the Nobel Prize was announced and everybody was wanting to know Peter Higgs, it was just almost too much for him. So that's the early Peter Higgs, uh, the child. He went to school. Well, the family were were initially in Newcastle. They moved down to Bristol in the southwest of England, Um, And uh, they lived there uh, through the war and afterwards. Peter went to school in Bristol eventually. And at the age of 11, uh, the high school he went to was called Cotton School, which happened by chance to be the same school that Paul Dirac, the physicist and Nobel laureate, went to. And Higgs noticed Dirac's name on the honors board in the hall of Paul Adrian Maurice Dirac. I mean, a very unusual name. And he wanted to know what had this boy done? And so that was his first insight uh, in the fact that the school had had a a physics hero and that I think was part of his original interest in becoming a a physicist. The war then happened. The Second World War happened Um, and he was uh, around 1945 in the final year at school preparing for university and was horrified when the news of the atomic bomb explosions took place uh, to realise that the the subject that he was in love with was being used to create these awful weapons. And he said he almost quit there and then, but uh, then discovered that the two professors in Bristol University, Cecil Powell, who later won the Nobel Prize, and Neville Mott, also a future Nobel Prize winner, um, gave a couple of public lectures uh, very soon after the end of the war uh, about uh, the atomic bomb insofar as it was possible to know what had gone on, because it was still highly secret, and also the new possibilities of, of nuclear power and other uses of it. And so Higgs went along and heard those two talks and discovered from the talks that the possibility of using nuclear physics to do things uh, and the new science that was beginning of what became particle physics, that was really when his uh, career choices were set.
1: So then what field uh, did he choose to study when he went to university and further education?
0: So he went to university in London, to King's College, London, and he did his undergraduate degree there in mathematics, primarily. He was, was, and I would say actually is, primarily a mathematician, who uses the tools of mathematics and applies them to the physical world. Uh, So he studied mathematics as an undergraduate uh, and he graduated in theoretical physics because he also was doing physics courses. Uh, While he was there, he met uh, uh, a man called, well, a fellow student called Michael Fisher and became great friends with Michael Fisher. Uh, And Higgs said to me, this was the first time in my life that I met somebody that I knew was smarter than me. Uh, And Michael Fisher himself became a a great uh, physicist um, and almost won the Nobel Prize. Uh, The fact that Fisher was highly tipped to win the Nobel Prize after having had great accolades and then to everybody's astonishment, not least his, uh, when the prize was awarded to one of his collaborators, but Fisher wasn't included, was totally devastated. And I think that experience may have some relevance for understanding Higgs' running away the day when his Nobel prize was coming around, but we can get to that in due course. So that was Higgs as a student. He graduated and started to do research um, in Applying physics to biology. We're we're talking here now 1952-53 time. Um, The discovery of the structure of DNA, I think, was uh, around then, 1953 or so. Um, Just down the corridor from where Higgs was uh, doing his studies uh, was the team at King's College London, uh, Rosalind Franklin there, who were along with Crick and Watson at Cambridge, discovering eventually what became known as the double helix. And uh, if anybody has read uh, the the book about the double helix by Jim Watson, one sees the intense rivalry there was between the Crick and Watson team and the King's College London team. And so Higgs was on the periphery of that in his first student project doing mathematical studies of helical molecules. Um, And he wrote a paper with two other people, uh, which apparently made quite an impact in that field at that time. Uh, I say that for two reasons. One, that is the only paper in the whole of Higgs's life that he wrote with anybody else. He only wrote a dozen papers in his total career, which is very, very small. And they were all, apart from that one, written solely on his own, which again, I think shows you that he is elusive in, in, in many ways here. Um, So that is what he was doing in the 50s, but his heart really was set to become a a particle physicist. And uh, by 1960, he managed to change fields effectively and was offered a lectureship at the University of Edinburgh. And he moved to Edinburgh in 1960. And that is really when the career in particle physics began.
1: So, can you give us uh, maybe a short overview? What does particle physics study?
0: Well, in 1960, um, what particle physics was doing... Well, sorry, let let me be a bit more general. Uh, Historically, particle physics is trying to get deep inside the atom, deep inside the atomic nucleus, to find what the basic fundamental seeds of matter are. In 1912 or so, Ernest Rutherford discovered that the heart of the atom contained a massive nucleus of positive charge, and by the 1930s, they knew that this nucleus consisted of protons and neutrons, two types of particles. Post-war, in cosmic rays, the analysis of cosmic rays revealed a lot of very strange particles that nobody had ever dreamed of, things that didn't seem to have any role here on Earth. And suddenly it became clear that in addition to the proton and neutron, and also the electron that whirls around on the outside of atoms, there were lots of particles. And by 1960, uh, particle physics was in a total quandary, um, far from there being a literal handful of basic particles from which everything was made, uh, they were just proliferating like crazy. And the need for a theory to understand them was absolutely uh, overwhelming, but there was no real progress. People were trying every which way to build theories and uh, some were crazier than others, but none of them really worked. So that was the environment into which uh, Higgs began in 1960. Particle physics today, I don't know if you want to wait until we get onto later eras, um, but roughly speaking, um, 90, in, the, in the 1960s, many things happened, one of which was the discovery that the universe began in a Big Bang, and it was incredibly hot uh, during that Big Bang, and the realisation that by smashing particles together in machines like at CERN in Geneva, one could create in a very small volume for a brief moment the sort of Heat energy that the universe itself experienced in the first trillionths of a second of the Big Bang, we were able to replicate the physical conditions of the newborn universe and start investigating where matter came from, how it appeared, and so forth. And that is much more what particle physics is today. And as we will see, that is really what the importance of the Higgs boson uh, is, is all about. But in 1960, particle physics was trying to understand the basic seeds of matter and was getting nowhere.
1: Hmm, so it was mostly theoretical because there was no way to test it.
0: Uh, well, uh, well, in 1960, probably almost the other way around um, in that there, was, there were ways to test it. There were, what had happened was that post-war people had been sending balloons up into the atmosphere where we were being bombarded all the time by cosmic radiation. And as these cosmic particles smashed into the atoms of the upper atmosphere, um, they broke the nuclei, those atoms up, and produced these transient uh, new particles. And from that uh, came the idea of replicating that on Earth by building machines that made beams of particles, if you like, cosmic rays that we could control, and smashing them into big targets, in other words, dense targets of matter rather than the diffuse upper atmosphere and rather than leaving it to chance you know cosmic rays come and do what they do uh, we could design these things to try and investigate specific things so experimentally um, things were moving along very fast in fact that was the problem Uh, the experimentalists were discovering lots of things uh, but the theorists at that stage were not able to bring any sense of order to it
1: So what was Peter Higgs working on during that time? Well,
0: actually, during the the mid to late 50s, uh, when he moved to Edinburgh in 1960, his interest had actually been in gravity, in general relativity, which is a subject which is, even today, uh, highly esoteric and uh, has had relatively little progress in it. Uh, But he did make uh, some sort of a small level impact in that, in that the, the, the small group of people around the world who worked in that field had recognised uh, him from a couple of papers that he had written, uh, and as we will see later, due to that, one of these people invited him to take a sabbatical in North Carolina, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in 1966, at which Higgs would write his seminal paper. We, we can come back to, to that in due course. He had been working on general relativity, um, as a result of which he became fascinated by a a particular piece of um, mathematical detail. Uh, It goes by a name called gauge invariance. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just a a label. It's a, a piece of maths that is very critical when you're dealing with general relativity. And so Higgs became sort of quite expert in this concept. Now, it turned out that when he made the transition into the theory of particle physics in 1960, moving away from gravity and trying to understand uh, the other forces, the, in particular, the strong force that holds the nucleus together was the one that people really were trying to understand because this myriad of particles all seemed to be bursting forth from the atomic nucleus. And so we were trying to understand, well, they were trying to understand the strong force that binds the nucleus. So that is what Higgs set about. And among the various ideas, there was one that looked very promising. I won't go into the detail, it's not relevant, except that there was a technical aspect of it that seemed to be like a brick wall, that there was a showstopper. Nobody could get through this problem. And one day, Higgs saw a paper that somebody had written. Um, Where they thought that they had been able to get through this problem if you ignored relativity. Um, Now, Einstein's theory of relativity is critical when you're dealing with high energy things like in particle physics. Um, But if you ignored that, it turned out this person found a way to get through this blockage. However, this person also commented that the way they had managed to get through the blockage would not apply because no Theory with relativity had the particular magic feature. And Higgs immediately knew of a counterexample to that. By the chance that he had been looking in detail at things for two or three years, uh, he suddenly realized that he had seen a counterexample to what this person claimed, that it was possible in principle in relativity to get through this blockage. And he wrote a short paper. It, it just took him. Th- about a weekend to sort it out and he wrote a short paper in 1964 which demonstrated that it was possible to get through this blockage if you included the theory of electromagnetic force in there, a thing that nobody had taken into account. Everybody was so focused on trying to describe the strong force that binds the nucleus that only Higgs realised But what if you also, at the same time, include the effect of electrical forces? And it turned out that that would be the way forward. So that was his first paper and nobody took any notice of it. Uh, He then wrote a second paper uh, because he had found the way through the blockage. But now he wanted to work out what would actually happen when you included that in your theory. And he found the the lucky strike if you like that in getting through the blockage he found that he'd included uh, the effects of the electromagnetic force now i should just say one thing that the electromagnetic force in quantum field theory is described by being transmitted by little particles photons the particle bundles of the electromagnetic radiation and uh, Higgs, the photons are massless, they travel at the speed of light, they are light, they they have no mass. And the mathematics in Higgs' formalism showed that, surprisingly, um, by getting through this blockage, the photons uh, would gain a mass. Now, that was tantalising because photons don't have a mass, except in some unusual cases, like in superconductivity and so forth. But by and large, Higgs had found a mathematical solution to a problem. The mathematical solution had a consequence. It had a consequence which seemed to have no relation to the physical world. But but there you were. But there was one further feature of all of this, which is that the way that he had got through this blockage and done all of this had made an assumption that the vacuum can never be empty, that there is something always in the vacuum that you cannot turn off. This has become known as the Higgs field. And I've told you almost as much as we know about it. I mean, what it's made of, we don't know. But he made this assumption and the mathematics works if you make that assumption. And it turned out that around the same time, within a couple of months, five other people independently had made the same discovery that you could do this mathematical trick. But of these, only Higgs made the point that if we are really immersed in this strange stuff that we've all had to assume, you ought to be able to do an experiment to prove the facts. And he drew attention that under certain circumstances, you could make this bubble up into particles, which we call Higgs bosons. So that was where we were in 1964 to 66. These people had found a way forward mathematically. Higgs had pointed out that with this, you might be able to test it experimentally. And nobody took the slightest bit of notice because it had no obvious relevance to anything at the time. Higgs tried to apply his theory to the strong force that binds the nucleus and got nowhere. He visited the States in the summer of 1966 and talked to the brilliant theorist Stephen Weinberg, who had also been trying to apply these ideas to the strong nuclear force and was getting nowhere. And so Higgs at that point gave up and Although the story's gonna have a fascinating future, Higgs was no part of it. Higgs basically dropped out there and then and didn't do anything at all of any significance in physics. I think he only wrote two more papers in the whole of his career. Weinberg, however, famously um, was driving to work at MIT one day when he had a flash of inspiration. As he described it, he said, I suddenly realized we've been applying the right idea, but to the wrong problem. They've been trying to apply this to the strong nuclear force and it didn't work. But there is another force at work, the force which is called the weak nuclear force. It gives rise to a certain type of radioactivity. And uh, Weinberg suddenly realized that the weak force had all the characteristics that this theory could be applied to. And so in 1967, he wrote a paper showing this fact. And again, that paper was largely ignored for four years. And then something happened, and as a result of which Weinberg's paper has been cited 10,000 times ever since. And the something that happened is really the next part of the story. It didn't involve Weinberg. It didn't involve Higgs. It involved a young graduate student in Holland called Herhard Toft. So... Do you want me to go there, or do you want me to ask something about else? Yeah,
1: yeah. Go on. It's just so riveting.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, I'll, t- I'll tell you this, the, the state of the understanding of the forces at that time. The electromagnetic force had been known for over a century, and the quantum theory of it, called quantum electrodynamics, had been created in the 30s by actually Paul Dirac, the forerunner of Peter Higgs at the school in Bristol. And by 1947, um, it was finally showed to be a completely viable theory that satisfied relativity, satisfied quantum theory and everything, and what's even more important, works. I mean, it can describe data to an accuracy of one part in a trillion in some cases. And a key reason why this theory works, this is a very technical thing, but is because the photon, the carrier of the force has got no mass. That that turned to be the key key thing. Now the problem with the weak force, I mean, it's all very well that uh, Weinberg created this theory using this mathematical trick of Higgs. The analogous carriers of the weak force are called W and Z bosons, W for weak um, and Z for zero charge, but they are both very massive. Empirically, to make this thing work, these particles had to be massive, and that appeared to be the showstopper. That's why people just ignored Weinberg's paper and ignored Higgs' stuff, because this is all very interesting mathematically, but the W and Z particles are massive, and that means you cannot... Copy the maths that had worked so well for the electromagnetic force. Massless photons was key, and you've got something massive. End of story. What happened in 1971 was that Herald Toft did a brilliant analysis in his PhD thesis, no less, in which he showed that if you started off building a theory of the weak force, totally by analogy with the electromagnetic force, and pretended at the start, that the W and Z bosons were, were massless, had no mass, just like photons, that theory would be viable. And then if you added to that theory, the mathematical trick that Higgs and others had discovered, that would produce masses for the W and Z bosons without disturbing this beautiful viability of the whole theory. So suddenly in 1971 their physicists had at last found the golden path. They had found the way to write the theory of the weak force just analogous to that of the electromagnetic force. It was the clue that these two forces are perhaps somehow unified in a a profound way. But the mathematical trick that Higgs and others had found was key to it. So after Atoft's work, he, he, Atoft shared the Nobel Prize with his supervisor who had done a huge amount of work on this himself uh, later in, in 1999. But following Atoft's work, everybody immediately realized this was the way forward. Now, every two years, um, and this is coming like to the end of the first part uh, of the elusive book, every two years there's a big conference, um, worldwide conference uh, of particle physicists and very senior figures review certain areas in the field. And the pronouncements, if you like, uh, by those reviews are very similar to the effect that Warren Buffett has in the world of finance. You know, people listen and they go ahead and do what the, what the guru says. Um, and the particular session uh, based around the Toft's work uh, was of course a very big thing that year. But as Peter said, in the session, they plastered my name over everything. There had been five people who had this basic idea of how to create mass from nowhere. Um, but by chance, the fact that Higgs had spoken to Weinberg uh, a few years before, and Weinberg had erroneously thought that Higgs was the first person to have had this insight, Higgs's name got attached. to to a lot of this in a way that Peter felt was not justified uh, and historically, uh, indeed, was not. I mean, he was one of six people who had independently discovered this mathematical trick, Uh, as we will see. He did one key further thing, which dealt with the boson, but that's another story. So that, if you like, is the end of the first part of of the book. We've got to the stage where Peter Higgs has had this once and once only brilliant idea. He couldn't make it work, so he drops it. But other people have suddenly found that this is the jewel that could make the way forward for particle physics. And at this big conference, everybody is mentioning Peter Higgs's name and his colleague, one of his colleagues comes back from the conference, sees Peter in the bar at the university and says, Peter, you're famous. And that's the chapter title at the end of part one.
1: Oh, wow, science is full of drama.
0: Yes, it is. It's exciting. It's a human activity. And that's one of the things I wanted to bring out, that uh, science, in a way, science truth is out there. I mean, nature knows the answers and we are trying to find them. So it is a great adventure uh, doing so. And you do it collaboratively. And uh, it is not only a great adventure, it's, it's a very humbling experience when occasionally... I mean, let's put it like this. Uh, In 1964, Peter Higgs scribbled some equations on a piece of paper. Uh, As he said at the time, uh, this summer I made a discovery which is completely useless, is how he viewed it. And then uh, 48 years later, we discovered the Higgs boson, an implication of those equations. Somehow the mathematics in 1964 knew more about nature than we did. It took 48 years before we caught up with the mathematics. It's a very profound thing that is going on in this communion we have with nature. And there's, of course, a lot of competition. Um, As I said, there were five other people who had had a similar idea to Higgs during that summer of 1964. Um, Two of these, uh, Onglaire and Brout, were working in Belgium. Uh, They had the basic idea and published it um, a few weeks before Higgs. Higgs did it independently next. And then a couple of months later, another group of three people uh, published. And uh, so there's six of them in 1964 jump forward to 2012 when the boson is discovered and everybody's speculating about the Nobel Prize. And one of the problems is the Nobel Prize can go at most to three people. And that, so there's a lot of controversy about, well, how do you give it to three out of these six and, and so forth? And also there were people and institutions lobbying that their people should definitely be in there. You know, So that, that uh, science is a pure activity. Scientists are humans. So that is part mm. of the, the story in all of this.
1: OK, so let's fast forward to closer to our day. So. How did Large Hadron Collider come into all of this?
0: Well, this is now part two of the three parts uh, of the book. So um, we now, uh, Higgs basically disappears almost from his own story and others take it up. It's clear to everybody in the early 70s that thanks to Toft's work using this particular thing, we've now found the way forward. Uh, the first part of this is it all depends upon there being W and Z bosons with mass, and the mass of these things is predicted to be nearly a hundred times heavier than the mass uh, of a of a hydrogen atom. I mean, way out of scale compared with anything that was known in those days. I think the the heaviest thing known at that time is about twice the mass of a hydrogen atom. Anyway, by nineteen eighty three four, um. A man called Carlo Rubia, a senior scientist at CERN, who spent a lot of time at Harvard, and he became later uh, the director general at CERN, but he had the idea of converting one of the machines at CERN uh, so that in addition to whirling protons around a ring, uh, you could create anti-protons, that's the antimatter analog of protons, and whirl those around the same ring in the opposite direction and smash the protons into the antiprotons. Now, anybody who follows Star Trek knows that when matter meets antimatter they mutually annihilate in the flash of energy. So that was the idea, to smash these two together, mutually annihilate them into a flash of energy, and then thanks to Einstein's famous E equals m c squared, that energy might coagulate as mass, that's the m, and if you're lucky Occasionally into W and Z bosons, assuming that the theorists are right. And wonderfully, the theorists were proved right that in 1983, the W and the Z bosons were discovered. Bang on, what the theories said should be the case. So that was very exciting. It gave confidence that we were going the right way forward. So the next stage was um, to build a machine at CERN, which became known as LEP. Large Electron-Positron Collider. Now, the electron is what you find on the outside of all atoms, and the positron is the antiparticle of the electron. The positron, incidentally, was predicted by the same Paul Dirac that was at Peter Higgs's school. There's quite a few little yeah. coincidences in this. And the idea of this was um, they, they built under the rocks around Geneva, a 27-kilometre-long ring of magnets to steer electrons one way, positrons the other, and smash them into each other and annihilate. And the point was, by tuning these beams, you could make them annihilate at just the right conditions to produce Z bosons. And over the course of 10 years, about 10 million uh, times, Z bosons were, were made, which enabled them to study the properties of these Z particles very, very precisely. And what they discovered was initially that, indeed, the theory worked perfectly. Um, But the more precisely they looked at these Zs, they started noticing some subtle deviations from what the theory predicted. And this was exciting because um, what happens in physics is that although you can only produce particles with masses limited by the amount of energy in your machine thanks to the wonders of quantum mechanics it's possible in a way to look over the horizon to get clues of things going on out there just out of reach by what's known as quantum uncertainty and when and the mathematicians know how to take those things into account and when they took those things into account they discovered that these subtle discrepancies between the measurements of the z Bosons features, and the theory fitted in with the idea that if there is a Higgs boson, and if this Higgs boson um, is somewhere out there um, heavier than the W and Z, uh, then everything will work. So this is now around 198 well 83 84. The W and Z boson have been found. Um, the by the 1990s it's become clear that the Higgs boson looks from theory now as if it really ought to exist but to produce it we're going to have to have a machine that is far more powerful than anything we have currently got we're going to be able to have to smash together things and produce a thousand times the mass uh, in fact maybe almost up to 10,000 times the mass of a hydrogen atom in, in, in one collision. And this is what led to, well, in the States, they designed a machine called the Superconducting Super Collider. It was going to cost them about 10 billion US dollars. And they had started digging the tunnel when Congress then balked and said, no, no, we, we can't fund this. Uh, what happened in the States was a beautiful example of the politics, which I also... Discuss in this section of the book, so I'll just tell you how it works. I mean, various states in the United States all wanted to have the super collider built on, in their state. And the senators were all very positive, so long as their state was still in the running. Then eventually, the decision was made that the site would be chosen in Texas, at which point almost everybody except the senators from Texas thought it wasn't such a good idea after all as you can probably imagine and so the whole thing was stopped um and so now the europeans said well the only way to proceed is to for us to build a machine and that's what became the large hadron collider the idea being that we've got this 27 kilometer long tunnel down there in which lep exists the magnets for LEP have been designed to steer little electrons and positrons. What we're gonna need is completely new types of magnets to steer bulky protons. And so the design of that started being looked into. And by the 1990s, uh, a way forward, it was was becoming clear that it would be possible in principle to build such a machine. It was gonna be very costly It would require the 15 member states of CERN as there were at that time to agree that this was the way forward. The CERN's budgets would have to be cut back uh, for doing almost anything other than focusing on the design and the build of the Large Hadron Collider. Um, And Britain at that time were really playing the bad man of Europe. What's new? Uh, Because they were really worrying about value for money. Um, and this became a potential showstopper in that if Britain said we're not going to sign our part of the check, the whole thing would have folded there and then, and perhaps the end of particle physics and that type of inquiry would have come to an end, and we would never have known anything at all about the, the Higgs boson. But then a couple of things happened. First of all, the science minister in Britain, a man called William Waldegrave, um, the constituency that he represents happens to be in Bristol, which was the town of Higgs's childhood. So that was a sort of interesting coincidence to try to exploit. And he was also uh, unusually intellectually curious. And he issued a challenge to the particle physicists and said... um, look, if you could describe what this Higgs boson is all about on a single sheet of paper, maybe that would help me impress the Chancellor when he's setting the budgets for next year. And I will award a, a vintage champagne as a prize. Uh, so, you know, we, we all entered this. I, I did. I didn't, didn't win it. <laughs> um, but I, I did send him a note. I said, I, I find it a little bit disturbing the idea that you can describe these profound ideas on a single sheet of paper. However, I said, uh, um, I will take up your challenge if you'll take up the similar challenge from me, which is to describe on a single sheet of paper the Maastricht Treaty. Um, That was the time when Britain was uh, contemplating uh, whether they were going to go into Europe with the euro and so forth. And there was this huge, legalistic, impenetrable, jargonese filled doctrine document called the Maastricht Treaty, which nobody could understand. Anyway, Waldegrave later said to me, we both failed the other person's challenge. I think that's how important it is. <laughs> um, but that got interest going uh, in Britain. And people in Britain realised that, oh, there's a, there's a Brit involved in this. Uh, Higgs. Who, who's Higgs? And that, I think, again, is also part of the charm. Of who's Higgs? That if if this person had been named Einstein or Rutherford or Fermi or something, those are the sort of names that scientists have. But Higgs is a—it's almost like a, a, a like a yeoman, a person who works in the field, a, a solid English worker from the, the centuries that have been working the land. And this sort of psychological feeling if somebody called Higgs can do this, then you and I can do this. There was that sort of common touch to it in its way. And that's when uh, my involvement, I suppose, began early on. The desire to try to help Higgs be a visible icon for all of this um, and for him to be part of the whole publicity process, I, I, I suppose, which is certainly not the sort of thing that he was comfortable with anyway. And also, he hadn't worked in this since 1966. Uh And uh, that's how I came to sort of be interviewing him uh, on the stage and uh, trying to help him bring the story out and where the beginnings of the idea of the book came. And uh, part two ends when we've got to the point in the story where at last after 48 years of trying and having finally built the Large Hadron Collider, seeing that it, it does indeed work, And it's probably the biggest scientific adventure since the Apollo moon missions. I mean, it was on that sort of scale. It involved physicists from all the countries of the world, pretty well, tens of thousands of physicists and engineers and technicians involved in building and designing the detectors at the experiments, building the Large Hadron Collider facility itself, a huge enterprise. And it ended up costing uh, over here the analog of about 10 billion euros, spread among, of course, all the member states and, and things like that. And in the public's mind, this was all tied up with searching for the Higgs boson. So if you can imagine yourself as Peter Higgs, who... In a state of naive innocence in 1964 have written these equations on a piece of paper and now nearly half a century later see all of this activity based upon this idea i don't quite know how i would handle that and there i am interviewing peter higgs on the stage i remember the first time we opened it i tried to sort of lighten the thing i said so peter i said "uh, 1964 you write these equations on a piece of paper and 40 years later there's tens of thousands of physicists they've built this huge facility to look for the idea and it's cost about 10 billion euros in total if today or tomorrow you found a mistake in your arithmetic would you tell anybody I mean, it was a rhetorical question because we we knew there was no mistake in arithmetic and there'd been too many things done with it. But uh, that that was an example, I think, of the sort of pressure because there was no mistakes in the arithmetic. Um, The theory was completely solid, but you do not know whether the theory is right until you've experimentally tested it. And that is what sets Higgs apart from the pack, in my my opinion, um, that only he had drawn attention to the fact that if this whole mathematical structure makes any sense at all, it means that there really is this weird field in which we're all immersed. And by analogy, um, I mean, your listeners probably saying, well, what's a field? Well, you've heard of a magnetic field, like the earth has a magnetic field, which goes out into space. Electromagnetic fields, what one has heard of. If you apply energy, to an electromagnetic field, you can make it burst into light because light is electromagnetic radiation, which in quantum theory becomes little bundles of stuff, photons. So by striking a match or just flicking a light switch, you can produce millions of photons just like that. Similarly with the Higgs field, if you can apply energy to it, you can produce the analogs of the photons, namely Higgs bosons. The difference, though, is one of scale that, as I said, you can produce millions of photons just by flicking a switch to produce even one Higgs boson is so difficult. You've got to have the whole infrastructure of the Large Hadron Collider smashing these particles together to make just one of these things bubble up. Um, And it only lives for a fraction of a second. So you have to detect not it, but the decay products of it in, in the hope of capturing evidence for it and to draw a further analogy um, you might say well what's the relation between the Higgs boson and the Higgs field well what is happening is that today we live in a very cold universe and this Higgs field is like a a placid lake to make some metaphor I I say that um, we need this Higgs field just like fish need water and by discovering the Higgs boson it's analogous to, the fish, analogous to the fish having discovered a molecule of H2O. What the fish need to know is how those molecules of H2O form the oceans. What we want to know is how those, molecule, how those Higgs bosons form the Higgs field and that we don't yet know. We just know that it is there because we've made one bubble up and reveal itself. But the, where the Higgs field has been in the history of the universe, back in the first trillionth of a second, the universe was incredibly hot, far hotter than anywhere in, in even in the densest star today. And in those in that epoch, in that very hot condition, Higgs bosons were bubbling in and out of existence all the time. When the universe cooled, the Higgs bosons were just sort of condensed into this background placid environment. And so if you like, they've been dormant for 13.8 billion years until at CERN, we were able to focus so much heat energy into a small spot. In that brief moment, we replicated that first trillionth of a second and made a Higgs boson uh, bubble out and reveal itself again. So that is what we've done. We've been on a journey back in time in a certain sense, but the discovery was on the 4th of July Um, I was at a conference in a summer school in Sicily with Peter Higgs at the time. Um, There had been a lot of speculation that uh, a discovery might be announced later that year. Nobody anticipated it was going to be made in in, in July, as it turned out. Um, Peter and I were due to come back to the UK um, on the 2nd of July when he received a phone call one lunchtime to say uh, that there's going to be a big announcement at CERN and he might be disappointed if he wasn't there and we also learned that uh, several the all living director generals of CERN have been invited to this so it was quite clear we knew that the experimental teams were going to make a, their annual reports um, but at that moment you knew that they're not going to invite all the past DGs to be there if the report's gonna say, we haven't found anything yet. So Peter completely changed his travel plans um, and decided rather than flying back to Edinburgh, he would go to Geneva. Well, he didn't have any Swiss francs with him. uh, And also his travel insurance ran out on the second because he thought he was going home that day. So all of those things, mundane things had to be dealt with. So uh, he and I were uh, together at the airport in Palermo. I was gonna fly back to England and we now know of course Peter's going to fly to Geneva and this we put out on Twitter with a rather misleading caption to give the impression that Peter was going to I I was flying back to England uh, via Rome and Peter was flying to Geneva full stop to give the impression that Peter was also flying to Geneva via Rome whereas actually. Actually, he was flying via Milan, the point being that any paparazzi who were going to descend on Geneva Airport would come and meet the wrong plane, which indeed that bit worked. Uh, But but the next day and the next day onwards, mayhem resulted. And the way that uh, my uh, second part of the book ends is what I call the 4th of July, um, with the absolute mayhem of the announcement, well, the excitement of the announcement, it was an exceedingly moving experience. I was in England watching on the internet, uh, along with many other scientists, um, and you could sense the, not just the excitement, it was, it was a superb atmosphere. Um, I later learned that uh, people had been queuing outside the, uh, uh, the CERN amphitheatre overnight. Uh, almost camping there uh, to ensure that they uh, got a seat in the auditorium. I mean, the, the DG had made a very profound decision apart from the former DGs and the uh, and Higgs and, uh, and people directly involved, the, the handful of people, the, the leaders of the experiments and so forth. It was like first come, first served. He wanted it to be an open event for anybody at CERN, not just the big wigs. And so everybody was camping out to go in there. Um, Peter Higgs uh, was in the audience and you could see on the uh, television monitor, that, on the, on the uh, I- internet monitor that we were watching on, that when it suddenly became clear that indeed the particle had been found and you know, he was wiping tears from his eyes, a- as we were. And it was quite uncanny because in that moment, something very profound had happened. Um, that I mean, a month before when I had interviewed Peter Higgs, before we knew that the boson existed, though we strongly suspected it for many, many years, but we didn't yet know. Um, this was the first time I'd ever interviewed somebody on stage, and by chance at the festival um, was a man called Jim Nocty, who in Britain is very well known as a, an interviewer. He's interviewed every, every politician of, of note in the universe. And I said to him just before I was going on stage, he says, Jim, I said, I've never done this before. How do you do interviewing of people on stage? And he said, oh, it's easy. I said, well, it's easy for you, I says, but you know, about me, I said, if you were going on stage now to interview Peter Higgs, what would you ask him? So, so Noctis thought for a few moments, and then he said, um, contextualise it. And I said, yeah, okay, what exactly do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, is all this stuff about the Higgs boson, is that just hype that's been created by the scientists and the media have gone along with it? or would its discovery really be a seminal moment in human culture? And I thought, that's it. It would be a seminal moment in human culture. And the challenge now is to bring out precisely why and what it all means. And so that's how it started. So there I was watching the announcements on the uh, at CERN that day. And I thought, this is the moment. You know, the epochs have changed. That up to this moment, We all speculated that the universe is like this. And now and for all time, we know that it's like this. And that is a profound change. That suddenly 2,000 years of searching from the ancient Greeks to the basic pieces of matter as to how everything is made had moved on because by this we had found the proof that there is out there this sort of stage, the Higgs field, that determines these particles, masses, and their properties that enable them then to do the stuff they do. So we have been looking at the players, for, or looking for the players for 2,000 years, and now at last we've found the stage that they're playing on, and that's what it amounted to in certain terms. So afterwards, uh, Peter Higgs then had to do a 20-metre walk from the auditorium across to another room where where all the world's science press were lined up. And it was absolutely mayhem. And uh, I talked to the two CERN ladies who were assigned to helping him, one of whom... She'd only been at CERN for three days. She had the responsibility for uh, showing Higgs around. And she said to me, I didn't even know where the toilets were. Uh, so it was like that. And of course the media wanted to know, have we got it? Have we really got it? And uh, they, the two ladies and Peter Higgs all said, you know, it, was, it was a frightening experience. That, the, that you had boom microphones stuck in your face. You had cameramen walking backwards in front of you. They, they walk very carefully. They're always just a, a metre away from you. But nonetheless, they're there in your face and thrusting these microphones in and everybody wanting a picture and a quote and so forth. Um, and somebody said, I, I now know how Princess Diana must have felt. Uh, it was quite an overwhelming experience. And it was as a result of that that Peter, I think, the concerns that he'd had about being in the limelight and his reaction to the world media, that really crystallised it for him. And that's the end of the second part of the book because the third and final part really is what happened next and so what. And the, the, the first chapter in part three is a quote from him, time to plan my escape. Because uh, immediately there was speculation, you know, will the Nobel Prize for 2012 Go to Peter Higgs, and, and if so, who else? Well, of course, he knew the answer was no, because the Nobel Prize had already... It was too late for that year's Nobel Prize. But nonetheless, the amount of media reaction there was gave him a foretaste of what it would really be like, most likely, the following year, when uh, the, the, the Higgs boson discovery would really be at centre stage. Um, and so that is what then led to the famous events of Higgs's disappearance. And actually the way that I structured the book was I thought this part of the story was itself so dramatic and an example of his elusiveness that I sort of begin it as a sort of foretaste of the story. Uh, Like often happens, you know, that you you see dramas on TV where you see something and then three months earlier, they jump to that sort of thing. Uh, And it was the day when the Nobel Prize will be announced in 2012. And uh, Higgs had this plan that he was going to be away. Uh, he wasn't going to be around. Um, he told his colleagues that he was planning to go off uh, to the north of Scotland. Uh, but then he had this insight that he didn't need to do that. He could just go to his favorite seafood bar about uh, four kilometers away from his house in Edinburgh. And so he set off first thing in the morning and did that. And I describe how it was. And he told me how it all worked. He went to the seafood bar he didn't have a he doesn't have a, uh, a telephone he didn't know anything else what was going on in the world nobody knew where he was the Swedish Academy delayed the whole process for half an hour because they couldn't find him it's normal to contact the winners and alert them to the fact um, uh, but eventually they decided to go ahead anyway and nobody knew where Higgs was so at the end of his lunch uh, he then came back uh, home and um, he said he didn't want to get back too soon, so he went to an art gallery to spend some more time. Uh, and already, you may be thinking, like I was, and still I'm thinking, why really did he do all of this? I mean, why disappear like this if what really drives you is fear of the media? Because what you are doing is creating an even bigger story. But anyway, that's what he did, um, and then uh, he came back towards his house and a car stopped and a, a lady that he knew led out and says, peter congratulations on the award and so he said what award and of course he he knew what she was referring to um but he got back home uh, and, and went into his house and then it was only later that afternoon uh, on the radio news that he heard that he was sharing the prize with uh, with Englert. Uh, Englert's collaborator Brout, Robert Brout, sadly had died a, a year or so before. So it was Englert and Higgs who shared the prize, which was awarded uh, in December 2013. So the book sort of ends with uh, what I call the glittering prizes. Uh, Peter's experience of the Nobel week. You're in Stockholm for a whole week. Uh, the Nobel awards are obviously the highlights but just one part of that week, Um, and that was a very interesting story in its own right. I'd often wondered, I assumed that people uh, wore uh, suits, morning suits like you do at a wedding, but no, uh, they are dressed up in uh, the gear from the time of Alfred Nobel. Nobel lived in the 19th century, um, and uh, you have almost like costume uh, from his time. And so Higgs said, you know, we went to, the first day there. We went to the tailors, and we were fitted for this costume. He says even getting into the shirt was almost like a an exercise in topology. It was so difficult. Uh, but anyway, he, he he won the prize, and he was awarded the prize. And uh, then uh, we come to the reaction after the Nobel. And one of the things that I had noticed was the reaction of the public. To, you know, to him, the very first time that I had interviewed him on stage was before the boson was discovered, and you know you announce Peter Higgs, and the audience applauds, and they're, they're pleased to see him, and the applause lasts a certain amount of time. Uh, you sort of know in your head how long it's going to be. Um, then the boson was discovered, and the next time I interviewed him was actually in Edinburgh, his hometown. Um, just after the Bosons discovery, and again, you know, I came on stage, blah blah blah, introduced Professor Higgs. The audience applauded, and the applause just kept going on and on. And I thought, this is this is their boy. This is the this is for them. They can applaud for an hour and go home happy. You know, it was a very strange feeling like that. The next time um, I interviewed him in Edinburgh was after he would won the Nobel Prize. And you might have thought that the applause this time would have been even greater. But no, it was in a strange way more formalised and back to normal. Not not because the novelty had worn off, I think. It was that back the year before, just after Discovery, Peter Higgs was still, if you like, owned by Edinburgh. This was their person there that they were recognising and they would applaud forever. A year later, Peter Higgs was a Nobel laureate and was owned by the world. It's a very strange transition. And I think psychologically for the person, it's a very profound thing. And and talking with him uh, at length, and I try to bring this out in the story, I'm I'm not a trained psychologist, but uh, uh, I think it is clear that uh, it is very hard not to have imposter syndrome when you're selected into a a group like that, along with the greats like Rutherford and Einstein, uh, let alone if your personality is such that you don't like the limelight. And so I, I end up with the conversations that we then had a, a year or two afterwards, which is really, so what does this all mean? What is the future of physics? Uh, what do we do next with the, what do we really want to understand about the Higgs field and the Higgs boson? Where do we go from here? And so uh, I uh, end up with a look towards the future whether any of that will turn out to be true well we maybe have to wait another 48 years to find out but that's how it all worked out
1: this is truly a fascinating story and just so multifaceted and i was wondering just as your title suggests peter higgs is quite elusive character how did you manage to persuade him to write a book about him
0: uh, th- I suppose you have to ask him that question. <laughs> um, the well, I, mean, I decided that this was something that I wanted to do. I, but I had written a book called The Infinity Puzzle about ten years ago, which was a detailed history. This was just before the boson was discovered, and this was the history of particle physics post-war, really, for my part, to educate myself on what all this Higgs business was about. And this became a book that uh, the Nobel Committee uh, studied when they were trying to assess various claims for priorities and who had done what and so forth. So that was back in 2012 I had done that. Um, And Peter had obviously uh, enjoyed that because uh, he was very he did a very generous thing that when I was interviewing him on the stage that very first time, um, it was actually at a a literary festival. And so copies of my book were on display. And uh, after the talk with Higgs, of course, the audience will come up. and They all want Peter's autograph. And so he said, oh, he was happy to give people uh, his autograph so long as it was on the inside cover of my book. And so I've never had such a long line of people queuing up to buy copies of one of my books, uh, as I did on that day when Peter Higgs was there. So obviously um, he liked what I had done. I mean, he he knew me personally, but respected that I was able to assess these things in a fair way. Um, And uh, that is, I suppose, why he was happy to do this with me um, with that said it was a very difficult time i mean we are now dealing with somebody who is into their 90s um, and we were doing it long distance over the telephone uh, and he has very strong views on what he would want to say and want not to say and of course this was my book writing about him not his book writing about him um, so it was not easy And, uh, you know, I had to make a lot of decisions. Along the way, um, he told me some things which I thought were too personal to go into a book because um, it's very easy when you're chatting with somebody that you know to say things that you probably don't want to be on the record, even though they are on the record. Um, But equally, I also had some surprises about the science. Um, I, uh, and two things, my feeling about the disappearing acts on the day that the prize was awarded I don't have an answer but I do have a question I keep asking myself bearing in mind the fact that my closest friend in this case Michael Fisher had got very strongly tipped to share a Nobel Prize which he then was excluded from and was devastated by the fact that I am now in the situation where the whole world is saying that I'm a shoe in for the prize this year, and I can't get the idea of my friend's experience out of my mind. If that were to happen in my case, how would I handle it? Well, speaking personally, I would want to have some time on my own to reorient myself, and maybe disappearing at the time, might be a sensible option, so that was one thought that came to me. The other surprise that I had was a very deep one in the in the scientific sense, um, and I'll try to say this in a way that isn't uh, going to be you know, uh, it, it, too, too, too difficult for, for the audience. Uh, but um, in the, Peter wrote these papers in 1964, the two two short papers. Uh, along with these other five people at the same time. It was two years later when he wrote a big paper during a year's sabbatical uh, at the University of North Carolina. And it was in that big paper where he included what you might call the DNA fingerprint of what became known as the Higgs boson. And indeed, it was in that paper that the key way of identifying it was spelled out and was used by the experimentalists to identify and prove the existence of the particle. And that is why I felt, and I think most of my colleagues do, that that's what set him apart from from the rest, that he had shown the experimental way forward. Um, I said, the difference between a theoretical physicist and being uh, Shakespeare is that Shakespeare Uh, he he wrote many sonnets and many plays. There there isn't just a one and one only. He, He might have changed a few words in them and they would have still been wonderful works of art. Peter Higgs wrote some equations down. If you change just one symbol, the whole meaning would be changed and they wouldn't work. The key thing that distinguishes the great piece of mathematical structure is if nature reads it. And that is where experiment comes in. It's an experiment that decides what is real and what isn't. And the Higgs boson was the way that nature showed us that what all was being done was indeed correct. And so that's why I regarded that as so important. And then Peter, on one occasion, um, he was quite agitated, saying that uh, I had actually not really understood the reasons he'd written this paper in 1966. And he spelled out the reasons why, and I rewrote part of my book. Um, and it was, it was and still is quite a shock to me. Basically, he said this, people... Uh, the, the, the few people who had taken any note of these short letters that he'd written in 1964 were not all convinced by them. He, th- they thought there might be technical errors and so forth. So his goal in 1966 was to write a paper really explaining the whole mathematical foundations of this theory. So like a legal document, it would all be spelled out there. And he did that. And then he read it and he thought, this is exceedingly technical. Um, Maybe I also need to include some sort of simple pedagogical example. And so he inserted a section in the middle of that paper uh, to give a sort of illustrative example of the ideas he was talking about. And in that section, there happened to be uh, some equations which turned out to be the key ones that the experimentalists later used. The surprise was that Peter said to me, that it was only after the Higgs boson was discovered that an experimentalist told him, you know, that, oh, yeah, we, we use this. That was the. It wasn't until then that he himself realised that he had provided the way for experiments to do this. And I was absolutely astounded because basically he said that he'd written this, what it amounted to is he'd written this theory down in 1964, and... 48 years later, experimentalists produced the proof of the whole theory by using his paper, and he himself hadn't until that moment realised the importance of what he had done in his paper. And So I think there's something very profound there, but that was a shock that I had. If I have a scoop in science, that it is.
1: So then what questions uh, you still want to address? Uh, sort of what did you discuss with Peter Higgs of what, what do you want to find out in, in, a, big, in, in, in a wider sense in a physics?
0: Well, two, two things. I mean, Peter made a very good point which I say in the book and I would say to any listeners, he said he was very worried that there'd been so much emphasis placed on the Higgs boson with regards to the Large Hadron Collider. I mean, he had been used for many years Uh, by the community of physics to help promote this quest. Um, But in the public's mind, the Large Hadron Collider was totally associated with the Higgs boson, whereas in reality, uh, it does much more than that. But Higgs said, you know, in the public's mind, they feel that it was all built to find the boson, and now it's been found, so the public will say, why don't you turn it off? And he, he felt it was important that, you know, one realise and demonstrate that the Higgs boson is one piece of a very big uh, set of things that the, the, the machine, the LHC, uh, can look for. But, of course, it is so singular that it makes huge headlines and the LHC will make discoveries, but nothing like this. I mean, the... It, I would say that the discovery of the Higgs boson, its implications in the physical sciences are as big as a century earlier, um, Rutherford's demonstration of the, uh, the nuclear atom was. Um, and uh, that, and you, you don't make discoveries like that every day. <laughs> um, so there's that. So, uh, but at a more pragmatic level, what are the immediate things? that you want to do, Um, we've discovered the Higgs boson that demonstrates that the Higgs field exists. What do we know about the Higgs boson? Well, it, it shows that the Higgs field doesn't have any sense of direction, which is what the theory predicted. We know how much energy it takes to make it bubble up and produce Higgs bosons, and that's about it. What we don't know is how these bosons actually condense to make this field. And so the simplest uh, and first step would be uh, what is now hopefully going to happen at the Large Hadron Collider is if you had higher intensity beams, uh, then there's a a chance that when you collide, you might produce two Higgs bosons in, in the single collision. And if you're lucky, those two bosons might interact with each other before they die. And you could detect that in your uh, detectors. And so you would get the first insight into how bosons interact with one another and make the first step into building up this ocean, which we call the Higgs field. Uh, And that hopefully should be possible in in the next uh, few years because uh, the LHC has been sort of upgraded. The beams are are brighter uh, and uh, effectively uh, the collisions at slightly higher energy, um, and so that hopefully we will begin to know. The longer term, the LHC is looking far beyond a horizon that we've ever been able to see before, and what is out there at the moment only nature knows, and if I was really confident that I knew what it was, I wouldn't be having this conversation, I'd be writing that paper down myself and uh, hoping it didn't take 48 years to prove it right. Mm-hmm.
1: So, essentially, it's all just the start of the story then?
0: In a way. uh, In a way that I said that the discovery of the Higgs boson is the end of the beginning, (laughs) not the beginning of the end.
1: Well, this has been a truly fascinating glimpse into this extraordinary story. So, can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? (laughs)
0: Mr. <laughs> is taking a rest. <laughs> um, well, what I have been doing just for my own amusement uh, is writing a, a series of short essays um, called Seven Lucky Numbers." Um, so I thought, let's uh, why do we believe the number seven is lucky? So I, I chose to have seven lucky numbers. So I've got uh, three essays because three is also a lucky number. I have three essays on each of seven different topics: integers. Um, irrational fractions pi e exponential everybody knows about that because of covid i suppose Um, nothing infinity and imaginary numbers so there's the seven and i've just sort of done that for amusement um but what i shall start with and i mean hopefully uh, i'll get that out and published it'll just be a small easily readable book nothing like elusive in its profundity but um what i do think i might work on um i've got an idea in my mind that i'm calling destroyers of worlds which is really the uh, the 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 origins of uh, the nuclear age the birth of the nuclear age um from the original discoveries that led to the uh well obviously that, that led to the atomic explosions at which Oppenheimer uttered those famous words. Um, now we become destroyers of worlds. But, but then what happened next? Um, how did it come about that uh, nuclear power as of immediate post-war was going to be the great way that was going to solve everything. And and now it turns around that people think quite the opposite um, and destroyers of worlds might have, more than one meaning. It might be that if we don't use nuclear power, then we're going to destroy the world by killing off the climate. Um, I don't know yet where this will lead, but it's it's a vague area that I want to know more about, and hopefully it will crystallise enough that I might write about it. We'll see.
1: Mm, That sounds super exciting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Well, uh, about... My book, I suppose, I hate to say this, but if you go to Amazon, you'll find the book on there. What I like to do, well, I I, I hate to say this, I love bookshops. I love local bookshops. And I love supporting local bookshops because if we don't do that, then bookshops will die. Um, So probably go to your local bookshop and ask them, do they have Elusive by Frank Close? which is coming out in Europe on the 7th of July. Um, And if they don't, why not? (laughs) Or you could go to uh, Amazon and uh, and get it from there. And I suppose from that, you'll then find out about uh, other books and things that I've done. I mean, the last two books that I wrote uh, were uh, centered in the immediate, well, Second World War and post-war period um, of two physicists one of whom definitely was a spy that was Klaus Fuchs uh, and another one Bruno Pontecorvo who was a great physicist who may or may not have been but he disappeared with the Iron Curtain in 1950 and off the face of the planet for five years. Um, So the book about Pontecorvo is called Half-Life and the book about Fuchs is called Trinity. Um, So those are the last two books that I did.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you.